James <coughs> chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. As I've already noted, James, not unlike Proverbs, moves from subject to subject without much in the way of a discernible rationale. His treatment of his subjects, again, as in Proverbs, can be quite brief, even terse. Such is the case with the three-verse section we are reading tonight. It's clearly a separate section, as you will see if you consider what comes before it and then what comes after. So, beginning James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, some commentators prefer to take the first phrase of verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, as the concluding sentence of the previous section, all the more as the ESV does not translate a but that begins the second half of the verse. But let every man be quick to hear. Such a but might be thought to be a natural beginning for a new section. As you can see, the ESV editors don't agree, and they start verse 19 and the new section with know this, my beloved brothers. They do this principally because James regularly begins a new section in his letter with my brothers or some form of that address. As, for example, he will in the first verse of chapter 2, in the 14th verse of chapter 2, in the first verse of chapter 3, and so on. An appeal to his brothers, in other words, at least in James, starts a section. It doesn't end it. Now that matters for this reason. It's going to be important for us to remember that James is addressing Christians in what he is about to say. He's speaking to his brothers about what he's going to call their moral filth and rampant wickedness. We're going to return to that point later. Here, slow to speak, a common piece of Jewish wisdom, reminds us of similar statements in the book of Proverbs. For example, compare James to Proverbs 17:28. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. What is more, <coughs> the verse just before that, Proverbs 17:27 links hasty speech with anger, just as James does here. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. In other words, an angry person rarely controls his speech as he should. How often do you and I regret words we spoke in the heat of the moment? Like so much of biblical wisdom... This counsel also is something you will find in non-biblical, even non-Christian sources. In one of the intertestamental books, part of what is called the Apocrypha, Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus, we read, Be quick to hear and be deliberate in answering. If you have understanding, answer your neighbor, but if not, put your hand on your mouth. Even Plutarch, the Greek moralist, tells us of one Simonides who used to say that he had never been sorry 
for having kept silent, but many times for having spoken. Words to remember and live by. In the same way, the reference to being slow to anger is also proverbial. In Proverbs 15:18, we read, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And in Proverbs 16:32, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In fact, as you may remember, there are a number of Proverbs devoted to the subject of anger in one way or another. This, too, is an insight that unbelievers share with us. Here is Seneca, the Roman moralist, the contemporary of James, the Stoic philosopher, in his essay on anger. The most outrageous, brutal, dangerous, and intractable of all passions, the most loathsome and unmannerly, nay, the most ridiculous, too, If I were to describe it, I would dress it up as the poets represent the Furies, with whips, snakes, and flames. It would be sour, livid, full of scars, and wallowing in gore, raging up and down, destroying, grinning, bellowing, and pursuing, sick of all other things, and most of all, of itself. On to verse 20. Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There are perhaps any number of ways in which the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Angry people act sinfully themselves under the influence of a destabilizing and distracting temper. They are critical. They are very frequently genuinely cruel. They speak unwisely, very often dishonestly, and on and on. Anger, on the one side, and pride and selfishness on the other, are usually two sides of the same coin. People who act in anger also provoke others to unrighteous responses, whether that be anger or hatred or fear. Angry Christians also fail to adorn the truth of God's word. They fail to make it attractive to others and so fail to contribute as they should to the salvation of others. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. (coughs) To say that the word of God has been implanted recalls the Lord's parable of the sower and the soils, the seed of the word being in that parable planted in the human heart. I've already noted how often James seems to have the Lord's teaching in the back of his mind as he writes. The point of the figure of speech is to indicate that the word, as also in the Lord's parable, is intended to bear fruit, in this case, a godly character. The ground has been prepared by the Spirit in the new birth, to which reference was made in verse 18, precisely so that it might bear the fruit of a godly, Christ-like life. But for that to happen, we have to receive the Word of God. To receive the Word is to do more than simply to hear it. It's not enough to read or hear the Bible. One must attend to what it says. 
angry people seldom carefully listen to or attend to what anyone says, even God in his word. Here, save your souls could refer to the experience of salvation in the present life, but I think it is more likely that the phrase refers to the consummation of salvation, either at uh, death or at the second coming of Christ. As you remember, there are three horizons of salvation in the Bible's teaching. The work of Christ 2,000 years ago, the regeneration, justification, and sanctification of a believer in his or her own lifetime, and the consummation of salvation at the second coming. The terminology of save and salvation is used with respect to all three of these horizons repeatedly in the Bible. For example, in respect to the incarnation and the atonement, the angel Gabriel told Joseph that he should name the son to be born to Mary Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. In regard to the experience of salvation in one's own lifetime, the Apostle Paul told the Philippian jailer that if he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he would be saved and his household. And we read in Hebrews 9.28 that the Lord Jesus is coming again to save those who are waiting for him. Forms of the same word are found in all three of those texts and often in texts having to do with these three distinct horizons of salvation. Here, I think the distant horizon is in view, as is often the case in the New Testament. As always, it is the Christian who actually lives the Christian life, who obeys and serves the Lord, really, if not perfectly, who will be saved at the end. By the way, the word the ESV translates as rampant, Wickedness ordinarily means excess or excessive. So, for example, Paul tells uh, the Corinthians that their joy exceeded their afflictions. And in Romans 5.17, he says that God's grace not only redresses the damage that has been done by sin, but goes far beyond that mere redress. So, rampant wickedness an overabundance of wickedness is probably the idea. As one commentator puts it, it is a word that spells doom to any theory of sinless perfection in this life. And of course, we all have an excess of experience of this sad reality, don't we? Knock one sin down for a moment and another quickly rises to take its place. Thus far, the word of God. Now, I made a point of your noticing that James began the section by addressing himself to his beloved brothers. And then he goes on to tell them to put away their moral filth and rampant wickedness. We can scarcely imagine a more powerful acknowledgement that Christians not only remain sinners while they live in this world, but they remain serious sinners. Among those sins that still bedevil Many Christians are the sins of a loose tongue and of anger, the latter of which James will use here as his heuristic example, an example that teaches or illustrates or makes the point he is in the process of making. There is filth 
and there is wickedness in our lives as Christians that we must put away, get rid of, put to death, as the Apostle Paul would say. James, of course, could have used any number of other sins to make the same point. Why he chose these two, uh, he does not say. The Christian life requires a constant supply of fresh water, living water. We have that in the new birth, in the word of God, and in the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it also requires that something be done with the sewage. We are, spiritually speaking, as it were, both environmentalists, caring for the purity of the watershed, and waste workers, or waste uh, water workers, tending the sewer. We have both responsibilities every day, and we live every day with one foot planted in the clear fishing stream, high in the mountains, the water cold and clear and fresh, and the other in the foul city sewer. We are spiritual plumbers, if you will, concerned both with inflow and outflow. We came home this summer with my daughter Courtney's dog, Sophie. Courtney has four little boys, five and under, one pair of twins, one of whom has a hearing problem, and caring for a dog was just one responsibility too many. So Sophie now lives with her grandparents, who, like all grandparents, are more indulgent than her parents were. So she's happy. She's a very sweet nine-year-old yellow lab, and we love her very much. Sophie gets fed twice a day, breakfast in the morning and dinner at night, though the menu is precisely the same at both meals. And as I said, she is nine years old, so she knows the routine. But you would not think so. When she realizes that it's time for breakfast, she starts to sneeze, to jump up and down, and in a variety of other ways display great excitement. When we reach the basement and I'm filling her bowl with her jumping around me in undisguised glee, I often think, my goodness, she acts as if she hasn't been fed for days and as if this meal is going to be the highlight of her life. And of course, she does exactly the same things the same night, that very night, before her evening meal. And so it goes on day after day, week after week. She is in this a rebuke to me. She's so happy with the provision that is made for her. Whereas I, jaded human being that I am, am far more likely to take virtually all the far more extraordinary blessings that have been granted to me to take them for granted. If only I could have Sophie's twice daily happiness, even her thrill, just a few times a week. On the other hand, I hate to say it, there are features of Sophie's character that are not as attractive. She barks somewhat angrily at everyone who passes by and does so no matter how many times I tell her that she is not being a good neighbor, which a Christian dog certainly ought to be. <laughs> she also asks to go outside simply because she has learned to expect a treat when she comes back inside. 
In fact, I get up from bed to let her go outside that she, so that she can go to the potty, only to watch her run out, turn around, and come right back in for her treat. <laughs> Given that this happens virtually every day, James' rampant wickedness seems an apt description of her intemperate lust for snacks. It's not difficult to apply that illustration. We, too, are given many gifts. The Lord has richly provided for our lives, not only in this world, but in the world to come. He's given us a new heart, a new world of possibilities, and the spiritual resources with which to live a holy and righteous life and to live in the enjoyment of his blessing. We have so much to be thankful for, genuinely to be excited about, delighted with. How simple the Christian life would be if our hearts were always filled to the brim with the joy of our salvation. If we were every day thrilling to God's love for us and for what he has given to us, and if we woke up every morning relishing the moral possibilities that lay before us, we would find it so much easier to face our disappointments, to surmount our temptations, to work to eradicate the unworthy aspects of our character. And there are unworthy aspects of our character. Very unworthy. We aren't the good neighbors we ought to be. We have lusts for various things we ought not to want, or to want in that way, or to want in that measure. We want to tear, we need to tear the idols of our lives from the Lord's throne where they sit. Alas, so much of the time, it is not as it ought to be. There isn't nearly as much of the joy of the Lord in our hearts we are too little constrained, our behavior too little controlled by the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. The supply of joy and peace and love to our hearts begins to shrink because the pipes are being corroded on the inside with all of that filth and all of that wickedness. We take God's magnificent provision for us for granted. We don't keep a watchful eye on those supply pipes to keep them running clean and free. And the result, as we know all too well, is that there isn't enough water pressure in the system to flush out the sewage. I apologize for the crude metaphor, but it was James who used this image of filth. Among the many such defects of Christian character, James mentions two in the way, of providing examples of what he is talking about when he speaks of our filthiness and our rampant wickedness. The first is pride that makes us talkers rather than listeners, the lack of concern for and respect for others that makes us more likely to talk to them than to listen to them, to think ourselves more important and what we have to say more important than what they have to say. And the other is anger. Now to be sure, just as there is a time to speak and not be silent, there is a time to be angry. In the same way that slow to speak does not mean never speak, slow to anger does not mean never be angry. Paul recognizes this when he tells 
the Christians in Ephesus, be angry but do not sin. But in this way too, James is typical of biblical wisdom literature. He puts things bluntly. He makes the contrast absolute. He does not supply qualifications. If he did, the main point would be lost, which is that most of the time when we are angry, we are sinning against God and man. Righteous anger may be a very good thing, a necessary thing, but James isn't talking about righteous anger. He's talking about the anger we all know is sinful and unworthy of a Christian. And the fact is, virtually all of us, and especially all of us men, know very well how often we have been angry for no reason and how completely unchristian our anger usually is, how selfish, how cruel, how hurtful. I know it is so in my case. I've been reading of late a new biography of J.I. Packer. You know you have lived a consequential life if you have had two biographies written about you and you're still alive. That was the case with Martin Lloyd-Jones and with John Stott before they died, and now it is the case with Dr. Packer. These three as you may know, formed a triumvirate of British evangelical leadership in the middle and later 20th century. And all three of them have left a permanent mark on American evangelicalism and perhaps especially American Reformed Christianity. But being great men, men of immense gifts, having strong convictions about many things and wielding great influence, it was inevitable that from time to time they should have been involved in controversy, and that was certainly the case, has been the case with Dr. Packer. Dr. Packer, with the help of Martin Lloyd-Jones, founded the famous Puritan Conference that met annually for some 20 years in the 1950s and 60s at Westminster Chapel, where Dr. Lloyd-Jones was the pastor there in central London. The revival of interest in the English Puritans that transformed Reformed Christianity in the post-war years owed a great deal to that Puritan conference. Both Packer and Lloyd-Jones gave addresses every year, and those addresses, among others, introduced a whole generation of young ministers, myself included, to the treasures of Puritan theology and spirituality. Packer, in those days gratefully acknowledged that in many things the older Lloyd-Jones was his mentor and his inspiration. But in the late 1960s, there was a falling out between them because of Lloyd-Jones' growing unhappiness with Anglican friends like Packer, who remained in the largely liberal and often nakedly unbelieving English Anglican church. The Puritan Conference came to an end, largely because of the breach between Lloyd-Jones and Dr. Packer. And the personal friendship ended as well. Lloyd-Jones largely shunned Packer after this dispute had separated them. And the community, a substantial community of British evangelicals that looked to Lloyd-Jones for leadership, no longer considered Packer a trusted ally. It's hard, very hard, for a popular man to lose his popularity. All the more to lose it almost overnight. Sadly, 
though he had been their principal champion, the man whose scholarship had restored their confidence in their evangelical convictions, the Anglican evangelicals also began growing apart from Dr. Packer in the later 1960s and 70s. The charismatic movement reshaped English Anglicanism, interest in historic Reformed theology waned, and the man who had been at the very center of the evangelical resurgence in the Church of England in the 1950s and 1960s found himself on the outside looking in. John Stott had become the leader and the trend center, trend setter, very obviously and publicly replacing Dr. Packer in that role. It's hard to play second fiddle after being the concert master. And then, as many of you will remember, Dr. Packer used to be a fixture at R.C. Sproul's Ligonier Conferences. But when he contributed with Charles Colson and others to the project called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, Packer was, as the English would say, sent to Coventry by Dr. Sproul. He has not been seen at a Ligonier conference since the publication of that first document, urging some measure of ecumenical cooperation in the face of our society's moral collapse. What is more, he later published a book, Concise Theology. If you want a single book on your shelf to teach you the doctrines of our Christian faith, Dr. Packer's Concise Theology is a good place to begin which contained a good bit of material when it was published, a good bit of material that had been originally intended for a study Bible that R.C. Sproul was editing. After Packer's appearance as a contributor to Evangelicals and Catholics Together, Dr. Sproul claimed that what Dr. Packer had written was not good enough for his study Bible. An absurd an unworthy personal attack. Dr. Packer hasn't written anything in his entire life that was unworthy of inclusion in that study Bible. For your information, J.I. Packer was the theological editor of the ESV, the Bible that you now have in your laps, and one of the principal editors of the ESV study Bible, the best study Bible available today. But it's not fun, not easy, to be rejected by your friends, and to be criticized, if not smeared, in public. Now what is remarkable about these personal and painful alienations and all of these personal criticisms far too often made public is that they didn't produce in Dr. Packer himself any noticeable anger or ill will. He has had the opportunity, as many books and articles as he has published over the years, and as complete access as he has had through those years to the pages of Christianity Today, of which he has been a consulting editor, to tell his side of the story, to avenge himself on those who hurt him and criticized him, often quite personally, and he never has. Indeed, quite the contrary. He has invariably continued to praise in print the words and the actions that reduced his public standing, or rather the men whose words and actions reduced his public standing, marginalized him among groups of Christians who once lionized him and made his life difficult and his employment difficult in other ways. 
as well as costing him many personal friendships. So far as Packer's public pronouncements are concerned, you would suppose that none of these alienations had ever occurred and that all three of those men remained his treasured friends. After Lloyd-Jones' death in a biographical essay, Dr. Packer said that Lloyd-Jones embodied and expressed the glory of God more richly than any man I have ever known. He lavished praise on John Stott at the latter's memorial service, and he continued to write of R.C. Sproul as a treasured friend. Now that is a man who is slow to anger. And how beautiful such a character is and must be to God and to all thoughtful, intentional Christians. I want to be that kind of man. I've made some small progress, I think, but I would love to be that kind of man before I am finished with my life in this world. But it is rarely so. Is it? I grew up in circles where anger toward brothers ruptured once friendly relationships right and left. But those were smaller men. Take a larger example. The church father, Jerome, was without question a great man. His translation of the Bible into Latin, one of the great performances of world literature, what came to be called the Vulgate, became the Bible of Western Christianity for a thousand years. No small achievement. His commentaries on the Bible and other theological writings continue to be of value today, even though they were written in the 4th century and 5th century. But the man lived angry. As one scholar put it, Jerome was as unlikely to keep a friend as Augustine was to lose one. Aristotle defined anger as the desire to inflict retaliatory distress. And that was anger in Jerome's case. It wasn't enough for him simply to be angry with another churchman. He had to do what he could do to destroy the man's reputation, to cut him down, to separate him from his friends, Phyllis McGinley has this marvelous verse summarizing the life of Jerome. God's angry man, his crotchety scholar, was St. Jerome, the great name-caller, who cared not a dime for the laws of libel and in his spare time translated the Bible. (laughs) Now, you can't read Jerome's biography without coming to appreciate the man's spiritual strengths. He was a great Christian. But we wish he had put away the filth and rampant wickedness in this dimension of his life more than he did. As, of course, we hurry on to say, we wish we had done. Listen to this concluding paragraph from Jerome's great biographer, J.N.D. Kelly. And tell me if James has not hit the mark in speaking to beloved brothers about the filth, and the rampant wickedness remaining in their lives, and perhaps especially in regard to anger. As a man, Jerome presents a fascinating puzzle. 
None of the famous figures of Christian antiquity known to us had such a complex, curiously ambivalent personality. Far cleverer and more versatile than Rufinus, more learned and acute than Augustine, he lacked the balance and solidity of the one, the the nobility and generosity of the other. His affection for his friends, while they were his friends, was unstinted, though possessive. Once they ceased to be his friends, he could pursue them with a rancor and spitefulness that still dismay. Warm-hearted, kind to the poor and the distressed, easily reduced to tears by their sufferings, he was also inordinately vain and petty, jealous of rivals, morbidly sensitive and irascible, hag-ridden by imaginary fears. There can be no doubt of the reality of his conversion or in his passionate devotion to Christ and the gospel, but if this burning commitment was the driving force of his life, the forms in which it found an outlet were often strange, sometimes repellent. Some of these contradictions may have had their roots in the ill health which dogged him, or in his troubled awareness of his sensual nature. Others we should probably trace to the more fundamental flaws of his character, which we can only surmise. The deeper springs of his psychology elude us. So Jerome, and so in a smaller way, smaller Christians like you and I. Now, as we conclude, let me go back to Sophie dancing, prancing, and sneezing because she's about to get her dinner or her snack. James reminds us here that we are soon to receive the salvation of our souls. Stop and imagine, as we must, frequently, just for a moment, what an indescribably transcendent moment that is going to be. When you open the eyes of your soul and find yourself in heaven, or when you realize that the Savior is making his return to earth, and you feel yourself suddenly warmed by the glory of God, and you find within yourself a heart so full of love and joy that you cannot contain them. And what is more, all the filth and all the rampant wickedness will suddenly be gone and gone forever. You will hardly recognize yourself. You'll be clean inside and out, finally able to experience what it is like to be absolutely free of sin, to be living a life of true goodness, of nothing but love for God and man. If there remains, as perhaps there will, some anger in your heart, it will only be anger at yourself for having dallied with your sins as long as you did. You have every reason, in other words, to put away the filth and the rampant wickedness that remains in your character and your behavior. You have a surfeit, an excess of reason. A man or a woman who is leaping for the joy of salvation as we all ought to be all of the time, is entirely unlikely to lash out in angry words at some small slight or disappointment or misunderstanding. 
as Nehemiah reminds us, the joy of the Lord is the moral and spiritual strength of God's people. I began this series by observing that wisdom literature is different than other genres of literature in the Bible. There is less of the theological in it, much less. But James has tweaked the formula here a little bit. He's reminding us that God has created new life within us. That in verse 18. And here he reminds us that we're on our way to heaven and that therefore we ought to act, we ought to live accordingly. Take this problem we have of being slow to hear and quick to speak rather than quick to hear and slow to speak. Stop and think of God's way with you. Have you thought about this? God is gracious and he is so humble that while he has every right to speak to us and to expect that we should sit there and listen to him, remain silent while he speaks, he has not only given us his word, he has given us his ear. He's ready to listen to us, to everything we have to say. He invites us to speak to him at whatever length we wish and about any subject. Extraordinary. And then consider anger. If anyone has a perfect right to be angry with us all of the time, to be exasperated and frustrated and irascible, it's God himself who knows exactly what's going on in our heart and life at every moment. He's given us so much we take his gifts so much for granted. We hardly ever really thank him for them. We continue to love the very sins that sent his son to the cross. So often we fail to manage even what might be thought to be the ABCs of the Christian life. We care so often for so many other things more than for his infinitely wonderful salvation. But he's not angry. He's patient. He's understanding. He's sympathetic long-suffering, merciful, and kind. And he continues to be so day after day, month after month, year after year. We consume vast quantities of his grace every single day, and still he's not angry with us. If that doesn't motivate you to put away your anger, along with the rest of the filth and the rampant wickedness, what, pray tell, will ever motivate you to do so. To ponder and to take these facts to heart is what it means to receive with meekness the implanted word. There's a hard-edged realism in James, a bracing honesty about ourselves, about what's wrong with us, about our moral obligation to do so much better than we do. The acceptance No, the heartfelt embrace of that honest reckoning with our lives is a large part of growing in Christ, which requires in the first place a heartfelt desire to grow in Christ, a commitment, a passion to honor the Lord in our lives. Read these verses once again. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness 
and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The Bible consistently teaches us and in many different ways that true human freedom, Wesley's liberty, true human freedom, and that's what we all want. If you stop and think about it, what we want is freedom. That freedom requires, it absolutely requires, an honest recognition of the moral truth about ourselves. Here is that truth. Attend to it. Amen.